Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field, and gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Excited to be back with you this week. Uh, last week was fun with the growers, um, but uh, excited about today's guest. Go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, so I'm super excited to have one of my favorite pathologists on uh, from the <laughs> University of Nebraska, uh, Dr. Tamara Jackson-Zims. Tamara, how are you doing today? Well, I'm great, Andrew. How are you doing? One, wonderful. Uh, it's, it's and been Sean. A, yeah, it's been a, <laughs> been, a, been a great week. Like Sean said, you know, we had a, a phenomenal podcast last last week with the growers and very well perceived, uh, very, you know, very humbling and, and a great learning experience. So happy to, to follow that up with you, Tamara, and talk about Crown Rot. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on and discuss this the increasingly important problem and the th things that we think we know and wish we knew about it. <laughs> there you go. Well, before before we dive into crown rot, Tamara, we have a question we ask all of our guests when we start our podcast. Um, and you're actually going to get two. I uh, I was I was doing a little homework, so we'll start with in agriculture. Uh, what are you? What has you the most excited right now? In in agriculture in general, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm I'm a science nerd, uh, but I'm also a farmer's wife, and agriculture's always been really exciting to me because I get to combine some of my favorite things. And I I knew early I liked science, but I wanted to work with people and help people, and I stumbled on extension. And realized that in graduate school that I could use science to help people and work with good people in agriculture. And so it, it kind of became my goal to try to help people improve their lives and in profit margins. And I get to do that through plant pathology and disease management and work with a ton of great people doing it. I love it. You tell us, I guess I've got one more question for us, but tell, tell us about your um your kind of your education and then and then your role with extension right now absolutely uh my i probably sound different than most people you've heard from from nebraska <laughs> <laughs> so we have to start with that yeah, well, well, as, so I, as I, iowa state fans we'll leave that one alone we'll just <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you might leave i wear red but i wear a lot of shades of red uh, so I told people when I first started uh, at Nebraska that I was from L.A., and they kind of cocked their head and looked at me funny, and I, I fessed up and said I was from Lower Arkansas. <laughs> and so uh, I have an accent. It's still there, and uh, it, it gets worse at times. We can talk about that later, but I uh, – I went to school for my uh, bachelor's in in Arkansas in biology, University of Arkansas in plant pathology for my master's degree. And then I went on, I actually did an internship for a seed company in Arkansas between my master's and PhD. Started my PhD at the University of Missouri and then followed my advisor to the University of Illinois. So switched in the middle of that. A little hmm. stressful there, but wow. I got to experience both schools and meet a lot more people. And uh, and and loved both experiences and 
I was hired in 2005 at the University of Nebraska as an extension plant pathologist. And my focus area here is statewide for diseases of corn and grain sorghum. But I never get grain sorghum questions about diseases. <laughs> it's all corn. Yeah, I and bet. And so this has, been, this has been a great career, and it's exactly what I had hoped to do. Still yeah, having fun doing it. That's awesome. We yeah. appreciate you taking time to join us. Tell me about crazy pumpkins. <laughs> um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that one. Uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm like, Nebraska's my home now. I'm from Arkansas, but uh, I married a farmer. And so we farm up in northern Nebraska on his family farm. And, you know, we have weird hobbies. And uh, I mean, you maybe you grew up being a plant pathologist because you like to you like to grow plants well he farms he likes plants too and we started growing pumpkins and he always wanted to grow big big things and so uh we started growing giant pumpkins and that's kind of a sport in other parts oh, yeah. of the country yeah it's a big deal right yeah, literally absolutely. yeah absolutely <laughs> and so we're working on that and we kind of coined the crazy pumpkins for last name zims and uh, we sell a few pumpkins on the side, but that's to pay for our hobby, the giant <laughs> pumpkins. And so our personal best at, at the moment, I think, is 1,275 pounds. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, so how, I mean, how big, big is that? Like, what's the dimensions of that? Oh, gosh. That sounds so like a car. It is. It is a car. Uh, it's like a small, like a smart car size, almost. It's not that big. But, you know, they're... You can't reach around them, uh, but we have to measure them to estimate their weight throughout the season. And, uh, you know, we're we're real nerds. I mean, we fit into this deal really well, but it, it could be 12 feet around. Wow, so geez. imagine, you know, you probably each have a wingspan of six feet. So if you touched fingertips and went around, that's about how big that pumpkin was. And then it was almost waist high on me. Um, <laughs> I think and, we might have a new logo for a penny for your thoughts. We got to go to their farm next summer and try and hug a pumpkin together. <laughs> you come on out. I'd love to take you out. Uh, some years are a bust like this year and some, you know, it's boomer bust and it's, it's big fun. And there's a lot of information online. And I'd say if I get to put in a plug for the sport, this is an, this is a form of extreme gardening. And if you're into that kind of thing, look up, uh, it's called the great pumpkin Commonwealth. And they're hooked up with, uh, the Guinness book of world records. And they track these sorts of records on not just pumpkins, but all the other giant vegetables. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, so we will do later in the show. We'll, we'll make sure we link your information, but we will, we'll link the, uh, the, the, what, what did you say? The great pumpkin Commonwealth? <laughs> That's right. And bigpumpkins.com. Awesome. If you want to try this, there are there's more information than you ever wanted to know. You, you know what I've, I've recently seen on, on the news? I, I see they also take those gigantic pumpkins, they'll carve them out, and then they'll have boat races. They'll use them as sure. boat, boats and lakes, and they have races with that. So you the see regatta. People, yeah, you see people sitting in the gigantic pumpkins carved out with an oar, trying to paddle as fast as they can. I feel like all of a sudden I'm in the wrong business. Like This sounds way more fun than, than trying to keep corn standing up, right? But... It's pretty uh, fun. I love it. I love it. Well, good luck in your large pumpkin endeavors. Um, I thought we should start our show. I, I We always start our show with kind of an explanation of what we're going to talk about. But so today we're going to spend time talking about, about um, crown rot in corn. Before we get into the nerdy science, that's why, that's why Andrew's here. And that's why we bring on industry professionals. 
Let's just go super simple science. Explain the crown and explain the importance of the crown to the corn plant, Andrew. You know, if you're out early stage or early stages of, of development uh, in, in a corn plant, the, the crown is that area between the mesocotyl and the coleoptile. And so, as the, as that plant develops, you know, you're going to have uh, brace roots form from that from that location. And, and as you think of a, a, you know, right now we're harvesting corn. If, if you think of late vegetative reproductive stages in the corn plant, you know, if, if you were to say, hey, where's that crown? You know, you would basically dig up that root ball, split the, the, that root ball, you know, split the root in, in half. And, you know, where those nodal roots are compacted, you know, you got nodes one through four, and then nodes five and six are, are above that, you know, nodes one through four are stacked. That area is the crown. That's, that's what we refer to as the crown. So when we're out there looking for crown rot, we're, we're digging up roots, splitting those roots in half, and looking at that little pointy area okay. where all those nodal roots are compacted okay. into. Excellent. Yeah, I know I know it's a simple question, but I think directing growers' minds to really what part of the plant are we talking about, and then how, do, how does it physiologically impact the plant? So, Andrew, we've obviously spent, you know, we're on the end of harvest here or approaching the end of harvest, but tell me what have you been seeing in the field? Uh, we spent last week talking about kind of the conditions of the year starting really wet heavily saturated for the first um, few weeks or probably even longer than that of planting and then hot and dry this summer. What have you been seeing in the fields? Yep. Yeah. And, and I guess to finish up the, the question earlier, you know, why, why is that important physiologically to plant? You know, that's that's the highway between the roots and the leaves, right? So we have uh, nutrients and water moving up from the roots to the leaves. We have sugars moving from the leaves to the roots. And, and that crown is, is kind of the highway between those two, right? We okay. have vascular tissue in the stock. We have uh, the, the crown. And so without the crown or, the, or that vascular tissue in the stock, you know, when we talk stock rods, that's really, you know, picture, picture a, a broken bridge, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's essentially going to cut off that supply of sugar and water to, to the roots and the leaves. And, and so, you know, I think it's, it, it's perfect time to have Tamara on here to talk about crown rot because, um, you know, probably about a month and a half ago, I, I started seeing some of the, the worst crown rot that I've seen in years. And, you know, you look at some of the conditions that we had here in Iowa, you know, we, we were just completely saturated in the spring and, and then the rain just shut off. And mm-hmm. then it was stress on top of stress, you know, all, all the stuff that comes along with drought stress, you know, lack of potash uptake, la- lack of nitrogen uptake, you know, with, with no water to take up nutrients, that plant, that plant's going to be deficient and have all kinds of stresses. And so, um, you know, just, just walking and digging fields bef- before I even get to digging the plants and looking at the crown, I got to the point where I just knew if, if, if I dig that plant, I'm going to see crown rot mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, this, this season really threw a wrench in a lot of my, my, I would say theories in, in just the way I think about crown rot, you know, and, and that's why I'm kind of glad to have Tamara on because there, there's a lot we don't, there's probably more we don't know, right, Tamara, about crown rot than, than what we do Maybe. know. Yeah, way more maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, traditionally, you know, I feel like I had a pretty good take on crown rot. You know, there's definitely genetic resistance. But this year, you know, we're just seeing hybrids that typically don't have crown rot have severe crown rot. And so, you know, look, looking at planting dates, I feel like there was such, an, a, a, such a relationship with planting date in crown rot, more so than hybrid specifics or genetics. Uh, th- there was just a huge relationship with, with a, a planting window that we had here in Iowa, where if you planted around April 24th, give or take uh, a week, you could, you could about guarantee you had crown rot in your field. And it didn't matter if you were well-drained, didn't matter what your soil texture were or was. It, it just, if you, were, if you were planted around April 24th, you had crown rot in your field. 
And so that's, yeah, that, that's why I'm super excited to maybe, you know, talk to Tamara about what she's seen, some of the hypotheses that she has with some of the research she's doing, and, and maybe just learn from her on, on, on some of the background and, and maybe a, a little bit deeper information with Crown Rock. Well, thanks. That's high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, so I figure, you know, Tamara, let's let, let's kind of start from the beginning um, on, on what we do know about uh, about crown rot. What what are some of the environmental conditions that that really favor crown rot development in corn? Well, you know, this isn't a new problem. You know, this has been going on for a long time, and. Uh, if you look at some of the older uh, observations and literature, there's some assumptions that, like you just mentioned, you talked about wet conditions that might be driving that early in the season. And so uh, that's something that we're de definitely looking into. Uh, the, I guess the listeners may not be aware, we are doing a survey and collecting samples for, from multiple states around the Corn Belt, but... Uh, we're asking things that you mentioned, you know, about conditions early in the season and what about uh, things about like, like soil texture and all these other things. But generally speaking, we know fungal pathogens need wet conditions. And so there's an assumption that wet conditions at some point would favor crown rot. But we may not know exactly what that time period is. And at least early evidence may be looking early uh, in the season may be favorable. Yep. But at the same time, you were having wet conditions. We were pretty dry in Nebraska uh, for most of the season this year. And we saw crown rot too, but we also have a lot of irrigation. And we might be over-irrigating during those years when it's extra dry too. So yeah. it's part of those that long list of questions that we have about what factors are most favorable. Yeah. So, so do you have a, do we know really when does, does that infect in the seedling stage? Do, do we know that at this point or is it, is it anytime there's saturating rains, you know, that can infect uh, a plant that's older than a seedling? We, we don't definitively know that either, unfortunately, but, you know, I think we've all seen crown rot like symptoms in seedling plants. And I, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too specific because how do we know? Is that a remnant of what could have been a seedling disease, or is that early crown rot? And so there's no way at this point to know for sure. But we, you know, some of our studies right now are looking at those early season symptoms. And I know uh, some of my counterparts, like Allison Robertson at Iowa State, are looking for some of those same uh, things too. And so we're all talking, communicating about this, and asking some of the same questions. Yeah. So. With some diseases, we know the specific strain that's causing the infection, right? So with crown rot, is that a, is crown rot a specific pathogen or is it a, is it a symptom we observe in the plant? Am I asking that the right way, I, I guess? Well, I think, I think you are. you're getting it like are. species associated with it? <clears throat> well, yeah. right. So, so with some diseases, we can go in and we can actually find the, the exact pathogen. Yep. Is crown rot a general term to oh, determine yeah, yeah. Yep. rot, or is it a specific mm -hmm. pathogen or set of pathogens? Because we know we have <laughs> fusarium and, and other diseases. So w when do we define crown rot? When, I mean, that sounds silly to say, but when the crown is rotting, and is it, a, are, are we, is it caused by a specific pathogen? I, I think that's one of the golden questions here. And so often 
we've used the word fusarium crown rot to describe it. I I don't want to be too hasty in blaming fusarium just yet, <laughs> although, you know, that might be a likely candidate here. But um, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said which species. The difficult and unfortunate thing is, is there's tons of species of fusarium in that in that genus or that mm-hmm. group of fungi and they're extremely common in in all these fields um, we have fusarium species that infect corn that infect soybean that infect other crops or multiples and so we know for instance just in corn alone there's more than there's more than half a dozen species that infect corn the the frustrating thing about fusarium as a group is that these fungi being very common, they, they don't all act as pathogens either. Some of them can swing both ways, for instance, and they may just be root colonizers. They may infect the root, get inside there, and pretty much hang out as a latent infection. They may not ever cause damage, and but as pathologists, we can find them in there. We don't always understand the role that they're having. But at some point, it's like a switch is flipped or some factor changes, and suddenly that pathogen makes its way into the vascular system and becomes a pathogen all of a sudden. A good example of that is sudden death syndrome in soybean. Another fusarium pathogen causes that, and we know that fungus can be there for months before you ever see the leaf symptoms that mm-hmm. we know of as SDS. Yeah. And so it's unclear right now. If that is something that we're seeing in crown rot on corn, but that we are getting a lot of different fusarium species out of those right now. The next step is going to be, okay, now we put some of those examples up against corn plants, inoculating them artificially to see if we can duplicate what we call crown rot. Yeah. You, you bring up some, some interesting, interesting points, Tamara. You know, I, it's interesting. You go on Google Scholar and just look at try and find papers on crown rot, and there's just very little. And, and some of the, you know, I, I probably only found one or two decent papers to reference in, in regards, <laughs> you know, prepping for this. And I, I found one that they, they mentioned Fusarium oxysporum was, was one of the more common species found in crown rot. But they said, you know, reading through that, there was eight other Fusarium species from Gruminiarum to oxysporum. That, that were isolated in the crown. And, and I, I think one of the interesting points, points that you brought up, and, and I always think about, you know, we, we have this term endophyte, right? And so That's right. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a pathogen, but an organism that will, in, in, and I shouldn't even say infect, but a, colonize a, a root system or a stock and, and basically just hang out there. You know, it's not a pathogen. It's not doing any harm. And, and, and like you mentioned, just, just something triggers it, likely stress, and, and then all of a sudden becomes pathogenic. So is, is that kind of the process of right now of where we think, you know, the, the crown rot kind of lies and maybe it's, it lives as an endophyte temporarily and then, you know, drought stress specifically, uh, nitrogen stress, water stress, you know, uh, temperature stress. Is, is that maybe, you know, a hypothesis of how we think that, that uh, you know, fusarium species maybe flips that switch like you mentioned and becomes a, a pathogen? Absolutely. That's part of the conversation frequently right now. And, you know, 
we try to look at different ways. How, how are we going to answer that question? And part of that is, okay, once we narrow down the ones that we think are potential candidates, you know, what's the cause of this problem? Well, now we want to find out when does it infect, when does it make its way inside these grounds and roots? And so that's why we're starting early in the season to collect plants and start pulling out whatever we can find in them. Uh, and, and, and these plants, that can happen really early. You get all these different fungi. And some of these same fungi can also cause disease as seedling diseases, for instance. They're the same ones. You, you mentioned oxysporum. Uh, some of those have been renamed verticillioides, and they're also what we blame for ear rot and stalk rot and some of the other um, things that go on. But I want to be cautious, too, is that we also don't want to ignore the potential that there could be multiple pathogens working together in a complex. And we know that happens for some diseases and especially in other plant species. And so we want to be open-minded that we don't want to pin it on one pathogen and there may be others involved, in including other common pathogens that are there all the time, uh, like Pythium or Rhizoctonia. Mm -hmm. we, we just don't know yeah. some of that. Uh, we're even trying to look at nematodes as well. Yeah. And so, uh, again, lots of questions here. Yeah, and, and I've even read in, in, a, in a paper that they isolated Colitotricum, which, which is the pathogen that causes uh, anthracnose. That's been isolated yeah. in crowns before. So I found, I found that pretty interesting because, you know, I, I know there is anthracnose or, or Colitotricum can infect roots. And, and I think for the most part, you know, you, you talk corn, we're always just so used to talking anthracnose top dieback, anthracnose on the leaves. Mm -hmm. I, th I think very few people know uh, that they're, yeah, you can get uh, the same pathogen that causes that disease uh, in the roots. Exactly. I, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, in the crown where we're talking about a part of the plant that's below ground in the soil, the, the soil is such a rich environment for microorganisms. Uh, they're not all bad, though. Most of them, in fact, are probably beneficial or maybe neutral, uh, working as saprophytes and things like that. Yep. And so uh, there's a lot of parts to this to tease apart and try to answer these questions. And it, it's probably not going to be an easy, an easy road forward, but uh, we hope to chip away at this and get get a little more clarity and eventually hopefully hoping to lead to more management to help our growers out that are dealing with this yeah absolutely i mean you, you think about the environment that, that we face you know it seems like we're, we're either really wet or really dry and you know if if uh, we continue to face in, in you know years like this and and have situations where crown rot is is really bad you know that the more information we have on, on managing and preventing the the better so yeah, and Tamara, your your comment kind of just leads me to the I'm the so what guy, right? You guys are you guys are trying to figure out really complex <laughs> equations and I'm the so what guy. So with 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 what we know today, I guess I'd ask a couple of questions and then get into the so what. Can you draw a line between kind of so if you put crown rot in its own bucket and then just said all of these other stresses. So when I think through, you know, Andrew's observation this season has been a very high instance of crown rot. And I think through the growing season, we were, we had a really hard time picking good planting windows in a lot of the corn belt, but 
most specifically central Iowa, it was kind of, it was an issue of how bad are we going to plant it, not how long are we going to wait for good planting conditions. So planted into saturated soils, really not ideal uh, soil moisture or, or uh, soil saturation, then got a ton of water and then the water just shut off and really didn't turn back on most of the way through early our stages. So we were end of August before we started to get any rain. How does how does the the growing season stresses, in your opinion, kind of play with crown rot? Well, uh, that's a again another great question <laughs> or series of questions. Uh, right now, we can make great observations in having a year like you're talking about, where we seem to have more crown rot across the countryside. Hopefully, that'll help us gather more of that information and try to understand relationships now. And so that's part of the objective of the survey that we're doing, Uh, not just looking at moisture, but also considering soil type and temperature and planting date and a lot of those. And across all of these environments, I think that'll help increase our chance of success where we, we don't fully understand those stresses that are important or when uh, they need to occur to drive this disease development. I, I have some doubts too because, you know, Fusarium stalk rot is one of our most important diseases in the country on corn. And what's really the difference between stalk rot and crown rot? And so, uh, sure, it's in different, we talk about it like it's in different spots on in the stalk, but uh, it it may be it may be pretty simple and maybe it's, maybe it's not, it's pretty complex. And so uh, that's a real wishy-washy answer to a really good question. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's our goal is to try and learn. Tell me, tell me about, you've mentioned the survey. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the survey that you are conducting and, and what, what does it look like to participate in that? One of the things that we talked about early on was trying to repeat a type of survey that we did working with both Goss's wilt and bacterial leaf streak. And I bet some of your listeners contributed samples for those surveys and, and answers to these these paper surveys. We're asking all these all these detailed questions. And we're asking, you know, there's two pages of questions, a big a lengthy list. And some of these things may not matter at all, but we don't know the answer, and that's why it's important we're doing this. And we're asking questions about about the crop rotation and things like um, about uh, if you're including a cover crop and which cover crops as part of that, not just uh, soil texture, but also uh, looking at, like you said, planting window and tillage type and whether or not you're irrigated and what type. And so... Um, when people saw symptoms and maybe that's something we ought to talk about too, above ground symptoms people might see yeah. and maybe, you know, look for these symptoms below ground then. That, that is uh, something I, d- I did start to notice, you know, the, when I started getting calls and realizing in, in associating with crown rot with the calls I was getting, I, I was getting calls of, you know, guys, growers would be like, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a green snap. It's uh, plants just look like they're maybe kinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, plants are falling over. You know, we got random plants dying in the field. Mm-hmm. And and that's when I, you know, I started to go look at enough fields. And it was always crown rot. And so it, it got to the point where if, if I would get a picture or a grower would text me or, or call me and say, hey, this is what's going on. I, I would I would say I about guarantee you <coughs> crown rot going on. Yeah. Just yesterday, you texted in a group thread we were in. We had a 
grower asking questions. And that was one of your first responses is, Hey, grab a spade, dig a plant, split the roots, send me, send me pictures. So, yep. yeah. So let's, let's unpack that Tamara. I mean, so talk about those above ground symptoms, maybe observations that we would, we would see, and then that would cause us to go look at the crown. You know, I think one of the earliest symptoms is when you start to see plants that change colors really quickly. Uh, and you're you're not into senescence yet, so often this may occur maybe in September, uh, earlier mid September. You see plants that what we might call ghost, where they mm-hmm. turn a sick pale green. Yep. Um, and whether or not there's enough moisture there, it looks like the water got shut off, and that's exactly what's happening down below in the plant. And so. Um, if you see plants that look like this, that died suddenly or turning an off color, that's the, those are the ones I would recommend taking your spade and digging up that root ball, like you mentioned, and carefully taking your sharp cutting instrument uh, <laughs> and cutting down through that root ball and um, splitting that open. And then after you, after you use after you use your knife, you know you'll be able to see if that the discoloration, the dark brown or black discoloration in that in that crown down near that point below ground, that's what we call crown rot symptoms. And sometimes it extends out into the roots. Yep. I, I've um, noticed too, as you mentioned that, a, a lot of the, even, even some of the samples that I sent you um, and, and gave Allison, we, the, you know, I, w- I was seeing a little bit of a red tinge to the, to the radical roots. And I know fusarium as... Uh, you know, depending on when it comes in, you can kind of get a red tint. You know, often people think red root rot, and, and I've yet to see that or send a sample in that's been red root rot. It seems to always come back fusarium. Um, I don't know the species, but yeah, there, there seems to always be that red tinge to it. Yeah, we see that too. Uh, we think we've got both, you know, so... Uh, and if you can always find a fusarium species in the roots, we're not sure how useful that information is anyway, right? Yep. But foma is what causes red root rot, and that's we believe that's pretty common too. So, and knowing who is the primary and secondary uh, instigator here is another question. So, thinking about the practical um, the practical application of information we have today. So brand agnostically, not not looking to, you know, um, prop up any products, but thinking through tools that are available to us today. If if you were to advise our listeners as growers as they plan for the 2023 crop, um, I guess give us give us an importance of maybe hybrid selection, seed treatments, uh, fungicide use in season, those types of things. uh, what, What would your recommendations be? That's a good question, and some of this is educated guesses until we know a little bit more about crown rot. Well, that's um, better because Andrew and I just make most stuff up, so at least if there's some education in your guesses, your, our listeners are a step ahead with you. At least, at least there's know. some education there. Well, well, we'll see. Let's all apply some logic to some of this, too, yep, then. Yep. As, we're, as we're learning about when this infection may take place, and you think about what tools are available to us and our and our growers. Uh, you know, we have seed treatments and we have in furrow products as well. Well, uh, 
if we go with our hunch that this infection is taking place early, you know, seed treatments, for example, they do a great job. And there's a whole cocktail of different modes of action and classes of fungicides. And they do a great job for seedling diseases. But most of those products are probably worn off within about a month. Okay. And so it's unlikely that a seed treatment is going to provide control of whatever we think is causing crown rot. And so uh, so that's something for us to probably keep in mind. Now, whether or not fungicides later have an effect, that I think remains to be seen. And until we know how to reliably reproduce crown rot disease, it's going to be really hard to test some of that. Yeah. And so for me... The thing that we know for sure is that hybrids do seem to vary quite a bit. Some are better and some are, you know, a little less so with crown rot. <laughs> yep. And so I think working with your seed company agronomist and trying to position hybrids where they should be in the best environment and choosing them so, and knowing you have a problem uh, would help you. So hybrid selection, I think, is probably your best bet right now. Yeah. Until we know more about this, I'm I'm glad the the fungicide question got brought up because that was something that I started to hear for the for the first time uh, right around planting this year. I, I'd never heard people, you know, there there were people starting to bring up a V5 to V6 fungicide application to manage crown rot, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, we don't have any fungicides that are flow mobile, um, but I, I've heard people bring up. That, that it may help with crown rot. Do you have I, any? I've even heard people putting dribbling fungicide in the furrow. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I've heard that. That I mean, there, there are products I've heard that may, that makes more sense to me yeah. than than a, a foliar application of a fungicide. Do, do you see, or do you have any experience with a, with a foliar application at, at V five to V six impacting crown rot, Tamara? Or have you heard anything on that? I I haven't heard anything, and we haven't tried that work ourselves. And so one of the things we're going to have to figure out is how to how to inoculate once we know which fungus or fungi, for instance, are the cause of the problem. We'll have to figure out how to inoculate or to create conditions that are favorable to get natural infection, and yeah. then we could start testing some of these things that have the potential to help but we don't have enough information to provide that recommendation just yet. It wouldn't surprise me that there may be something that could help, but, you know, until that work's done, you know, I, there's not much we can... Hopefully you know, it's easier for on. you to find an inoculation assay than com with, with, with Fusarium crown rot than it is tar spot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the work you're doing then. So your lab is working on crown rot. Um, will you share with us kind of maybe what you guys are trying to accomplish and, and uh, what success you're having so far? Sure. I, I, I love that. And so the project, had, we've got two graduate students working on this. And so, you know, the, we have to keep in mind, too, we're talking about a disease where the primary symptoms aren't until a ne pretty narrow window at the end of the season, but that there's potential. We do see some early season things out in the field, but you don't know what you're seeing. You don't know what you know or see until you start digging plants up. So we uh, are taking plant samples. We're pulling the fungi out of them to see what's there. And part of this uh, 
process has been going on for several months in our lab and right now I think my lab is up to more than 1,000 cultures or strains of wow. fungi. Wow. And so it's it's a mountain of, of different isolates we call them and petri dishes. It's a petri dish farm right now. And so the next step will be trying to lump them into the ones that are the same and then we'll sequence those to find out what the species are. Yep. And that's a simple sentence, but <laughs> I, I want to, <laughs> I, I want to instill that there's a lot of uncertainty in, uh, in doing that for the fusarium species group too. And there's a lot of disagreement among scientists about that. And so that won't be as simple as what I made it sound. In, in layman <laughs> terms, though, you're trying to build the funnel, right? I mean, you're building the funnel and trying exactly. to narrow this down to where we can That's start right. to at least at least say, here, here are some things we know because today it's just too broad of a data set. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so we got to cover all the bases at first. And so from there, then, we'll want to learn more about uh, is this coming from the soil or is this something that could have been from the seed the previous year? Uh, we'll be looking at some of those uh, questions as well. We'll also do fungicide sensitivity testing. Part of that can be done in the lab. And yep. so once you know who your culprits are, you can put them up against some of the, say, seed treatments or other inferro or foliar products in the laboratory and get some answers. It sounds to me like by March of next year, you could have some really good recommendations. <laughs> Is that a little too eager? <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe in a couple years. How about that? Let's let's revisit that. But we start chipping away at this, and we'll have answers. And so eventually, we hope to uh, also see if there's relationships with again those other fungi, other nematodes, um, so, and hopefully move forward. So, so Tamar, just to, to give uh, you kind of hit hit on the subject, just to give the the growers and listeners a, a feel for how hard it can be. You know, I, I did I did minimal lab lab work when I was at Iowa State. You know, most of my my research was was looked at you know in the in the field, but it to to give grow, listeners a, a feel for how hard it can be. Say you're you're looking for fusarium species or anything in that crown, how hard it can be to get those isolates or, or those pathogens to grow versus anything else in that petri dish. Oh, oh gosh. Well, <laughs> we. Uh... If we consider all the all the little microbes, all the different fungi in the soil, just know that they're all competing with what we're trying to find that's causing the problem. Yep. And so, you know, in the petri dishes, we're isolating from these plant samples, and you may get half a dozen different things growing on the same petri dish. And so you need to tease out what each of those are and then figure out which one's causing your problem. And yep. it's it's... It's just uh, it can be it can be messy to yeah. say the least, and not all the, again not all those organisms are bad guys. A lot of them are beneficial organisms yep. too, and so there's a there's a lot to it. And you know we we dig this kind of stuff figuratively and literally. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, <laughs> is that is that like a PhD pun? <laughs> it, it, it probably it, plant pathologist plant pun. Pathologist PPP. Pun. Well, I. I Tamara, I, I really appreciate this. You know, it's it's. I think oftentimes we think of disease and we immediately go to the shelf and assume there should be an answer and probably don't appreciate uh, how, how difficult it is to even come up with the right set of questions, but then the sequence to answer the question and ultimately arrive at some recommendations. So I know as I sit here, I, I have a, a, a probably 
heightened appreciation for the amount of work that goes into these types of projects and the collaboration. And so appreciate you taking some time to give us kind of an understanding of what you guys are doing at the University of Nebraska. And we always take our show at the end to what we call a penny for your thoughts. Um, no, sorry, cashing in my penny. So I always cash in my penny, uh, on our podcast, you get what you pay for. Uh, so we ask Andrew to kind of give us a couple of succinct takeaways and I would invite you to join in on that if, 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 uh, Andrew fails to mention something that you think is critical, but as we think through kind of the application of this, Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of one of my takeaways from listening to Tamara, um, you know, we, we often count on and rely on seed treatments to manage some of those early early season fungal, you know, just just man, managing those those fungal diseases. And so you know, you kind of mentioned most of those seed treatments that we use have about a thirty you know thirty day residual, give or take. And so you know, I think I think that really gets us thinking about. Um, yeah, that, that's going to help us out early season, but then we still have the rest of the growing season to deal with a lot of those pathogens that are in the soil. So, so that's something to think about, you know, and, and that matches with one of my takeaways with 2022, I think, you know, we, we always talk about the first 24 to 72 hours of after this, you know, after that seed is planted this year, you look at, I, th- I think the next seven to 10 days were hugely important to yep. planting conditions this year, because we were seeing that big of a window where crown rot was infecting anything planted April 24th, give or take a week, maybe 10 days, depending where you're at. So I, th- I think that was a huge lesson on, on, on my part that, that kind of adds to some of Tamara's, you know, the, what, what she commented on. Um, I, I would say this, the second one is, um, yeah, we, we kind of have some theories on what causes crown rot to be a little bit worse. You know, Tamara touched on them, you know, uh, cool, wet soils. You know, that's 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 what we think favors uh, that that fusarium. Uh, if it is a fusarium species, right? Uh, that's that's what we think favors uh, crown rot, right? So, that that was that was my second takeaway, and I would say my third takeaway is that there's there's a lot we don't know, right, Tamara? <laughs> Absolutely. And we're we're gonna lead on lean on Tamara here the the next couple of years, and we're definitely gonna have her back on as we continue to learn more about this. But there, there's a lot we don't know, you know. Um, I, I think we have a good idea of what maybe, you know, the relationship between stress, drought, um, early season planting conditions. I think we have a rough idea and maybe some good hypotheses on, on what causes crown rot and when it's worse. You know, planting into to cool, wet soils and then shutting, shutting down or shutting off the, the moisture. I think that's a pretty good inducer of crown rot from my, from my experience. Yeah, Tamara, we've, we've talked in multiple different episodes about how we're seeing kind of this conversion in the mentality of let's plant soybeans earlier, maybe put a little more pressure on our soybean. So I jotted down in my notes as you guys were talking about planting date and put asterisks all around it, because I think one of the things we saw this year, probably more than the last couple is just how critical that corn planting date really is. And so when we think about a limited window of efficacy of control and fungicide um, as part of the seed treatment, and then all of the unknowns to me, putting the corn plant in the best possible conditions available to us is probably really, really critical. Is that a direct correlation to crown rot? That's probably a bold leap, but certainly not putting additional pressure on the plant probably has value. Tamara, do you have anything to add? You know, without data, not really, but I think that observation is important. And the the planting date, the conditions that seed and seedling are in and the days and 
weeks immediately after that plays a big role in what happens later on. And so I think that could be one of the things that we, uh, that we come back to repeatedly and yeah. uh, may help, may point us to the answer. Yeah. I was kind of thinking of the disease triangle and thinking in this instance, we don't know maybe one or two of those points, but we know what the favorable conditions are for corn plants. And so if we can err on the side of those favorable conditions, we hopefully at least ease some of that burden on the corn plant. Um, Tamara, you've been awesome. We really appreciate it. We're going to uh, request that uh, you give us some updates maybe over, uh, over the next couple of years. Um, tell our listeners if they if they want to uh, get in contact with you. Um, highlight for us again the, the the information about the pumpkins, but then tell us how we can uh, <laughs> we can follow you, whether it's social media or your work at the university. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and uh, Tamara Jackson Zim's extension plant pathologist. If you want to get a hold of me, I also recommend any of your local state extension personnel, and so they can tell you more about local conditions and some of the problems that you're seeing there. Um, I guess an, another place for information for a lot of these things is the Crop Protection Network. Absolutely, and we like to pr- we like to promote that as a resource, especially for disease and other other pests of corn soybean and etc and if you if you're digging this uh (laughs) this giant pumpkin thing and extreme gardening i i welcome you to contact contact me or someone at bigpumpkins.com or (laughs) what was it the great pumpkin commonwealth and if you want to get into this there's ways you can get seed and all kinds of recommendations for your area that's a that's a way better email address than we have a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com we need to see if they have room on the the server of a penny for your thoughts at bigpumpkins.com uh tamra greatly appreciate it um appreciate the work you you guys are doing and and thank you for taking time to join us today well, thank you all, and good luck this year. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. And I suppose we've got to give a little hint for. Uh, oh yeah, next week we don't yeah. we don't want to leave. We usually uh, leave our guest hanging and, and excited about the the next episode. Yeah. So uh, super excited as as always. Uh, we have uh, one of the the leading experts in the United States on tar spot from uh, the hint is Michigan State, and I'm sure you already know who it is, Tamara. I do. They're they're going to be in good hands. They're going to want to check back next week. Well, it's, we've been we've been, we had an awesome podcast with with uh, Dr. Allison Robertson, and and really looking forward to next week to just kind of carry on that conversation. It certainly is one of the hot topics being discussed discussed in corn. So uh, look forward to joining everybody next week. Uh, Tamara, thank you again. Thank you all so much. See you, Tamara.